Go ahead and turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. When I start a book of the Bible, I kind of determine how I want to approach it. In Isaiah, I'm thinking 66 chapters. I don't know if I want to be here for three years. And so, may, you know, we'll do at least a chapter, maybe even a you know, few chapters at a time. And did at least one chapter at a time until we got to chapter 6 and we did one verse. And then the next week we did the rest of, the, of, of chapter 7. Today we're going to get to verse 9. Um, I just as I was going through it, as I was studying it, I just saw a lot of things that parallel our situation today. Today, as we have ISIS that is upon the scene and Islam, radical Islam, and all that they represent, sometimes we can get overwhelmed by those things. There are some the sky is falling ministries out there that lend towards that fear. We look at our president. What is our president doing about it? We become frustrated with that. And how does it all fit together? Well, I don't know that all of those questions are going to be answered here tonight. But we have chapter 7 that I really see as a parallel to what's going on in our society today. We'll see some of the things that went on back then. Some of the things that the Lord had to speak through the prophet to the king of Judah. And, well, those same things, just even as they applied then, they apply to us today. So Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rethan, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remilia, the king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was called to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved, with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son, the son of Ramalia. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over, a king over them, the son of Tibal. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. We believe, and we will be established. God will establish us. He'll establish amidst the hardships that go on throughout the world, in our personal lives, whatever it might be, but we have to believe. If you don't believe, you're not going to receive. And if you do not receive, then you're just kind of left to, well, we see how those two kings were, or at least King uh, um, Ahaz was anyway in his people, as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. And the winds will continue to blow, but the Lord establishes us. And so chapter 7 represents a time in history where it wasn't ISIS, but it was in the same section of the world, this new uprising that was coming upon the scene, a new country, and a very ruthless country, the Assyrians. Now, 
it could also represent a time in your life when something more powerful than you was about to come upon you. could be a situation or a circumstance or, again, a world situation. But Assyria represents something very powerful and something very overwhelming. Assyria was a warlike nation that seemed to revel in killing, torture, and enslavement. They would conquer a people, make a public spectacle of the torture of the civic leaders, and then they would enslave the people. These conquered people would be put under tribute. Because just to go and wipe out a people just means you have a lot of land, and a lot of land just doesn't do you any good by itself. And so they would keep the people, and the people would work the land. And so the crops that they would grow, they would have to pay an exorbitant tax, if you will, to the king of Assyria in order to continue to be able to basically live. But again, they would come back and they would just decimate all of the civic leaders. They would usually take the king and make the spectacle, the biggest spectacle of him. They would torture him to death even over a period of of so many days to show what happens when you come up against Syria. So it became apparent that day that One nation by itself could not withstand against Assyria because they're just rolling over people. So alliances were made. Now, keep in mind, now I've explained this a few times, but I want everybody to know to kind of get an idea. At this point, Israel is a divided nation. You have the ten northern kingdoms, it's called the kingdom of Israel. You have two southern nations, Benjamin and Judah, that is the kingdom of Judah. So we got basically two countries, Judah, where Jerusalem is, and then we have the northern tribes, ten northern tribes, the nation of Israel. So these alliances are made, and one of the alliances that were formed was between the northern kingdom, Israel, and Damascus of Syria. Syria and Assyria are two different nations. Syria had been a powerful nation they're no longer on the rise. Matter of fact, they're on the fall as Assyria, Assyria is on the rise. Now, Damascus is the capital of Syria, so it will be that which will represent Syria at times. Ephraim is basically the capital, at least the worship capital of the northern kingdom, so that will represent the kingdom of Israel at times. And a key to their strategy, though, they were getting together. A key to their strategy was to be the inclusion of Judah. Now, the northern kingdom's king had always been an evil king, contrary to the Lord. At this time, Ahaz is the king of Judah, and so I would imagine they thought that he would come on their side because he also is a man who has absolutely no heart for the Lord. But Judah was not willing to align himself with these nations. Their king Ahaz felt he had a better idea. So in this situation, what we're going to look at this week and next week is a series of illustrations. Illustrations when there's something out there, again, trial, tribulation, rogue nation, whatever it might be, that seems so much bigger and so much more powerful. What do we do? So the first thing we have here is this severely shaken king. At this time, Ahaz, who is the grandson of Uzziah. Now, we looked at Uzziah a couple of weeks ago, chapter 6, verse 1. He was a good king, sought after the Lord. Not a perfect man. He went into the temple and made sacrifice, something that a king is not to do, and he was stricken with leprosy. But all in all, he had a good testimony. But now we have his grandson, Ahaz, who is seated upon the throne. Ahaz, his testimony, not good at all. We see it in 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. 
It says, now in the seven, 70th year of Pekah, the son of Remilia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. All the kings of the Israel were evil. Instead of following his forefather, Ahaz, he's following this other nation's kings who are not right before God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire. Son passed through the fire. He sacrificed one of his kids, probably his oldest son. Not even probably, it was his oldest son. Back then, they believed if they would give of their oldest son <clears throat> to these false gods, that these false gods would bring them power and bring them success. And so here's a man who made a human sacrifice, literally, of his son. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord has cast out from before the children of Israel. That's always kind of an amazing thing. Israel gets ready to enter into the promised land. God tells them, don't go after these foreign gods. But Israel comes in, God says, I'll go before you and I'll expel those nations. And he does. He works this miracle, delivering them from Egypt, then going into the promised land and basically clearing out the promised land from before them of people who are greater and stronger than them. But lo and behold, after periods of time, they go after the gods that were able to do absolutely nothing for those nations that were before them. Verse 4, And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, places of worship to false gods, on the hills and under every green tree. So this man, again, had absolutely no heart for the Lord, but his heart beat for the world and the false gods of the world. And back then, the false gods of the world usually represented riches, sexual immorality, and things along those lines. So at this time, King Ahaz is a man faced with options. Here comes Assyria. They're coming down the line. Matter of fact, because he's refusing to align himself with the northern kingdom and Syria, they're going to come and invade him as well. And so he's got problems, but he's got options. His options, well, three options, three main options in the face of a coming trial. First, he can relent and he can align himself with Damascus and Samaria. He can align himself with those, with those kings, with those nations. Or he can pay tribute to Assyria. Why go through all of the hassle of being conquered, him being tortured and made this public spectacle, and then Assyria putting this nation under tribute? See, a lot of times, if you would just surrender, they would let you live and let you go on as long as you paid that nation their tribute. Or his third option, he can simply trust in the Lord. He can simply trust in God and the promises of God. And so in our lives, we have situation and circumstances. On the world scene, we've got some pretty evil nations, especially today. We can align ourselves with other nations. We can pay tribute to them somehow, some way, basically surrender to them. Or we can just go on trusting God and trusting in the promises that God has given us. I mean, do you really think that any nation is greater than God or God's word? Or do you think that God's not going to be able to prevail? God's not going to deliver you. Keep in mind that our Bible was Ahaz's Bible, and he could read about Moses. He could read about how God delivered them from Egypt and led them into the promised land and how God overcame all. 
He, he could read about judges and see when man turned his back from God, then God turned his back from man. In Proverbs chapter 3, which he could read as well, verses 5 through 7, it says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Don't look at the world's situations and lean upon your own abilities or your own understanding. It says, in all of your ways, acknowledge him. Acknowledge God, and he, God, shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. And so don't go according to man's better ideas, but seek after the Lord. There are situations and circumstances where man needs to rise up and we need to go to war at times. We see that throughout the scriptures. But it's got to be that which is led by the Lord. So Ahaz takes inventory of his options. We all know what the answer should be. But the problem is, if you do not know the Lord, you'll never be able to trust in the Lord. This man does not know the Lord. Since he does not know the Lord, he does not know the power of the Lord. So trusting in a God he does not know is basically out. Secondly, an alliance with his neighbors is out. He doesn't really trust them. Not only does he not trust them, but he doesn't believe that they're powerful enough to overcome Assyria. Because Syria, they're worried, they're concerned. They've been the national power, well, at least the world power in that area. And now they've got to do something because Assyria is rising up. And so they go and get Israel as an alliance. And they're looking for Judah as an alliance. They're trying to maintain all that they have. That's what the world's trying to do apart from God, trying to maintain all that it has, all that it has gathered, because that's all it's ever going to get. Or the third option, this only leaves, us, leaves him with one last one, pay off Assyria, pay them tribute and just hope that they go away. Not only hope that they go away, maybe he can pay them off and they'll come and they'll help him against Syria and the northern kingdom. Because keep in mind, because he didn't go and join that alliance, they are now coming against him. And so he even needs help against them. Maybe this will work out. Maybe he can manipulate the situation. He's probably thought it out on his bed. He's come up with, he thinks it's a really good plan. I'll pay off Assyria. They'll protect me against Syria and Israel, and they'll refrain from attacking Judah. So, Syria and Israel are not happy with this decision that he rendered. And so this has been a key part of their plan to have Judah on their side. And so, well, they're not happy. We see it comes in, in, in verse 1 that now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham and the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remilia, the king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it. We'll see in a bit why they could not prevail against it. But they're making war. Matter of fact, it seems like they were going to overwhelm them. They were coming up and they were making war and they were taking captives. They were taking captives and they were consuming cities. And they came up to the very threshold of Jerusalem. Matter of fact, some of the captives they brought back. And as they brought back into the northern country, uh, uh, Israel, and to their cities in the northern country, God spoke to them through the prophet. These are my children. Who are you, especially as you are my children, northern Israel, who are you to take them captive? And so God spoke to them, God convicted them, and so they released those whom they had taken captive. But nonetheless, you see their heart, their heart is very far from the Lord. 
And so their intent is to attack Judah, remove Ahaz from the throne, and replace him with somebody more agreeable to their plan. Because what they're coveting is the resources and the manpower that exists in Judah. But it says they came to make war, last part of verse 1, but could not prevail against it, against Jerusalem. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim, so his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. So basically it tells you, gives, us, gives you a synopsis in verse 1 of what's happening. And now King Ahaz is told that these forces, Syria's forces, they're in Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and they're preparing to come up against you now. Now we know just as President Obama should know, just as Bibi Netanyahu should know, just as Ahaz should have known, that the protector of Israel is God. That trust is to be in God and what God is able to do. And a lot of times, and I've seen it with Christians, a lot of, we kind of forgotten that it's God who we trust. Take out a quarter, look in the back of the quarter. And it's God who Israel is to trust. What needs to happen with our dear President Obama and even Netanyahu, they need to get right with God. They need to get right with God and understand that the same God, at least Netanyahu as well, same God that kept Israel is going to be the same God that keeps them in the future. And it matters not what the United States does. Now, I'm not casting off Israel, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be part of what's going on there in helping Israel. I think we should. We'll see that God has said that he will bless those who bless Israel. And part of our very existence, I think, has been, I believe, has been with our fellowship and our help with Israel. But Zechariah chapter 12, verses 8 and 9 says, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So by the United States backing off, it doesn't mean the destruction of Jerusalem. I read to the book, the end of the book, it's not going to happen. And so we do need to stand with Israel. Please don't get me wrong on that. But Israel's well-being does not depend upon us. It depends upon God. And there needs to be revival in Israel today. There needs to be revival. They need to come to a saving knowledge of their Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has a plan for that as well. So upon hearing of the coming invasion of Syria and Israel, Ahaz and his subjects, they're shaken, just as shaken as truly as the trees are in a forest. So what is God doing here in Israel? Well, same thing he's doing here in America and doing in Israel even today. The Lord shakes his people in order to get their attention. He shakes his people. He allows certain things to happen in order, again, to get the attention of his people. So to do so, I talked a little bit about this this morning. I think I mentioned it Thursday night. The first thing that he does is he sends his word. And in his word, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, King Ahaz could look this one up. And your house and your kingdom, speaking of King David, speaking of uh, Judah, shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, we know that that was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. We know that there was periods of time when Israel did not live or didn't exist as a nation. 
but nonetheless, God's promise is upon them, and he's got a plan because truly it was the hand of God that reestablished Israel in fulfillment of his promises. But as I said this morning, when man does not listen to God's word, God raises his voice by sending the prophet. And that's what he's doing here in chapter 7. That's what he's doing here tonight. Not that I'm a prophet, I'm not a prophet, but God is speaking through his person in order to give his people hope in an overwhelming situation, in a situation that there's not a lot that man can do. Now, what happens when you ignore the pro- you ignore the word of God and you ignore the prophet of God? Then God raises his voice by sending Assyria. And then later to Judah, he'll be sending Babylon. To America, he sends 911. Again, God raising his voice so that he would come back and so that we would listen to him that we would have a heart for him, and that as we turn to him, we would even come to him, and we would see revival in the land. We would see salvation coming amongst a people and giving glory to the God who is truly seated upon the throne. The next thing we see is the hope offered through the prophet. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now and meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Now, when my kids messed up, I could just say, Sean, or Kelly, Jamie, Chelsea. They had to yell, Sheer Jashashub. I mean, how do you get that out fast when you're upset with your kid? I don't know, but they probably had a nickname or whatever it might be. Now, it's through Isaiah that God raises his voice to the king in order to call Ahaz to trust in him. Now, I would imagine Ahaz, he's probably surveying the situation right now because he's up at the aqueduct. During Ahaz's day, the aqueduct was all above ground. And see, if a nation's coming, what is he preparing for? He's preparing for Syria and Israel to come and to come against Jerusalem. Now, as they're coming against Jerusalem, they're going to be all shut up in the city. And you've got a major problem when that's happening because how are you going to get water into the city? How are you going to provide for your people as, as, as this, this siege is going on? Well, he's trying to more than likely figure out what we're going to do here to make this work. Later on, Hezekiah is going to figure it out, and he's going to make an underground aqueduct into the city. Different point in history, but nonetheless, this is when Assyria does come and is defeated by him, but by God. But... Nonetheless, he's up there, he's making plans for the siege that is about to come through this attack that is going to come upon him. And so again, through Isaiah, God raises his voice. Now it's here that basically God is meeting the king through the prophet to offer him hope for those who trust in him. And what we're going to look at, we're going to look at seven points of hope. Seven points of hope that were offered to King Ahaz that we can glean from today. Seven points of hope that prayerfully we can hold, hold on today. And again, I'm not just talking against ISIS or against that situation there, against the situations and circumstances of our life, against the hardship that we experience unique to each and every soul that is here listening to this even today. And the first point of hope that we see is in the name of Isaiah's son. I believe that's why he sent him with Isaiah, Sheer Jashub. The name of the young man means a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. Now, there's a problem in that. If a remnant is to return, that means the majority isn't returning. 
If a remnant returns, then the majority is not. Now, I'm sure there was a long and a short to this. Well, I know there was a long and a short to this. And the short was in the Babylonian captivity because is, uh, Judah is going to write this one through as we how it would go on. But there's going to be the Babylonian captivity. Israel is taken captive by Babylon. I believe it's about 100 years after this situation was going on. They're taken into captive, and then God releases them. But remember, only as we studied Ezra and Nehemiah, only a remnant of them came back to reestablish Israel. Everybody else got real comfortable in the world, no longer had a desire for the Lord and the things of the Lord. The hope to hold on to here, though, is, is the knowledge that God is in control. God's in control of Syria, Israel, and Assyria, and later on, Babylon as well. Today, God is in control. It's the message that he gave through the prophet in that well-known scripture in Jeremiah 29. Now, Jeremiah 29, it comes during the time when Israel has been delivered into Babylonian captivity. Now, it's a scripture that you should be able to gleam on when you're in captivity to whatever may hold you captive. Again, your situations and circumstances of life. But this is what God said as Israel, I'm sorry, Judah, the southern kingdom, is in Babylonian captivity. It says, for thus says the Lord. Now, this is for Jeremiah. Where's Jeremiah? Jeremiah stayed in the southern kingdom until he went off to Egypt. But nonetheless, he stayed there. And so you had the greater part of the people that had been taken away captive. And so he meets the prophet, and the prophet's giving hope to the people. And it says, for thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. And so God's saying what he'll do many years from this point, 70 years after they've been taken away captive, so that you can look at this and you can realize that God's hand was upon the situation the whole time. We could do a cross-reference, we're not going to, but to Daniel chapter 9, and see that Daniel chapter 9, well, Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, based his prayers upon what God had told the prophet Jeremiah, because when 70 years were up, Daniel was expecting God to move, and we know that God did. Verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's as if God said, but I had to raise my voice to you. I, I love you, and I want to see you walking right with me. I want to be the passion of your heart and the desire of your soul. So I allowed you to go into captivity, but I want you to know, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, because the thoughts that God was thinking towards him was Messiah, and all the way through the Messiah to you, even here tonight. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, and not this evil that we're always, God doesn't have all of this evil for us, even today. The evil that we're seeing throughout the world and the martyrs, the persecuted church and the beheadings and all of that, that's not what God has. And it just comes from the sinful nature of man and the disobedience of the church. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not evil. Why? To give you a future and a hope. Keep in mind, faith, trusting in God for today. Hope, trusting in God for tomorrow. I don't know what my tomorrow holds. Let's cut it down. I don't know what next week holds for me. I got some plans put Bible studies together, prepare for them and all. On Friday, I'm going to my mother's surgery, and then a little bit later, Friday afternoon, I'm doing a funeral for a member of my family, and being able, I have this opportunity to preach the gospel to my family, keep me up in prayer and that. But I don't know in actuality what's going to happen, but my hope is in God. 
Hope's not in my plan. What I'm able to do, my hope is in God. The world situation, you're constantly hearing. Constantly hearing. There's troops at the border. They're just on the verge of invading Israel. And all of this is going to happen. And you're always hearing about the sky is falling. The sky is falling. Well, the only way that the sky is going to be able to fall is if God drops it. Because it's the hand of God that holds the sky. It's the hand of God that holds the sky in place. And I guarantee you, I've read to the end, the sky does not fall. One day it's going to burn up, but it definitely does not fall. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not evil. Why? To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And see, in this, I don't know what your Bible says, but mine, there's kind of a little sub-thing it says, so that Calvary Chapel, Ontario's prayer meeting will be the most well-attended meeting of the month. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. And so God's saying, when it seems like we've fallen into despair, when it seems like it's over and the sky maybe even has fell, God's saying, no, no, I haven't forgotten about you. You forgot about me, but I had to raise my voice. You always had my word, but then at some point you stopped listening to my word. And so what I did is I sent people to speak to you and to guide you, but at some point you stopped listening to those people. And when that happened, I had to raise my voice, and I did so through these foreign nations. If God is in control, then a country is always headed into what God is preparing for them. And so whatever God is preparing for that country, it's not bad. It's either good or it's hard. And sometimes God has to do the hard thing. Remember, our care for Israel will result in our country's well-being not necessarily going to result in Israel's well-being. We need to support Israel for our own country's well-being so that God's hand of blessing will be upon us. We need to understand and know God's word as far as his blessings for a nation that blesses Israel, and we need to find ourselves in the midst of that. But not for Israel's well-being. God's going to provide for them for no matter what. Israel does not need us. Israel needs the Lord. Matter of fact, we need Israel. We need Israel to display our trust as a nation in God. Now, the second point of hope is in a series of commands. Verse 4. Where am I? Okay, verse 4. And say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia. Well, he's got these countries coming up against him. Syria and Israel are kind of running roughshod through the nation. They're coming to Jerusalem, very concerned about this, and there's Assyria behind them. And so he gives them these commands. First is from the positive, take heed, two of them, take heed and be quiet, or take care and stay calm. Take care and stay calm. In the translation, this is in the Pastor Mike translation, don't freak out. Because what do you have the tendency to do? I have the tendency to freak out. I can do that. My first reaction, just what? You know, just freak. No, take care. Just reevaluate the situation. And again, remember and understand that God's in control and stay calm. Stay calm. Don't go flying off in the flesh. 
because the only thing that the flesh has ever accomplished is negativity, is that which is contrary to God. And the second is from the negative, don't fear. Don't walk around in a state of fear. Because what does fear do? Fear will paralyze you. If you are afraid enough, you'll go hover in the corner or cower in the corner. If you get enough fear within you, it will completely paralyze you and you will do absolutely nothing. Do not be faint hearted. Don't walk around in a daze. Now, if you're in control, then you need to fear. You need to freak out. You need to fear and you need to be faint hearted because it's all based upon what you are able to do. And isn't that how we evaluate the attacks, the trials, the situations and circumstances of our lives? We evaluate them based upon what we're able to do. Just think if you can truly evaluate them based upon what God is able to do. Now, there's lessons to be learned in the midst of them. It's not just for the purpose of them going away, but receiving everything that God has and understanding that God is the God of my life and he's the God of the trial as well. This is not to be taken as a don't worry, be happy, but this is the peace that comes from God's word because of the knowledge that God is sovereign over your life, God is sovereign over your country, and God is sovereign over the world. He is seated upon the throne. He's seated upon the throne at this very minute, and there's nobody powerful enough to cause him to relinquish his throne. He's sitting upon that place of protection. Nothing happens apart from the knowledge or the will of God. And again, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not evil to give you a future and a hope. The psalmist understood this in Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. And God says, I will be exalted amongst the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still. Stop. Stop. Calm down. And know that he is God. All those other gods are nothing. can do absolutely nothing. But the Lord is our God. The third point of hope is in God's perspective of who our adversaries are. Again, the last part of verse 4. These two stubs of smoking firebrand. In the sight of God, they are only two smoldering little firebrands. What's a firebrand? They are two little sticks that the Lord is using to stir up embers for the purpose of reigniting a fire. It's a fireplace poker. Back then, they didn't have fireplace pokers, so they would just use a little stick. And they would stir up the ashes within the fire in order to get the fire going back again. Now, it says it's smoldering, and so that tells me that God is currently using them to stir up the fire. So since these kings are being used by God, that means they will be directed according to the will of God. And sooner or later, they're going to be disposed of by God. Now, I can say that boldly because history bears it out. Syria, third-rate country. Assyria, there's a remnant left, but no powerful nation there. And then the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom, after it was taken captive, never became what it used to be, just kind of smoldering firebrands that were used at one point but now have almost been discarded by God. And so they are directed according to the will of God, but one day God will discard them. I've read to the end of the book, all these other nations that we can be so fearful of, one day God is going to discard them. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, 
like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And so God is able to use the kings and the leaders of other nations in order to see that his will is worked out. Fourthly, the fourth point of hope is the knowledge that they will not succeed in their plans, verses 5 through 7. Because Syria, Ephraim, remember Ephraim is also Israel, and the son of Amalia have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tobel. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. We who are for the Lord... We have been told in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, we are more than conquerors. That means we live our lives from the standpoint of already having achieved victory. That victory for us was achieved upon the cross. Psalm chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. These are nations that come up against him. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath, and distress them in his deep displeasure. So, since we are more than conquerors, then those who come up against God's people are more than conquered. They're more than conquered. They fight from the standpoint of already being defeated. And so that's why you see these nations come upon the scene, but then fade away. Nazi Germany, it was fighting from the standpoint of already being conquered. Now, it's easy to say that now, but just put yourself in 1938, and there's Hitler. He's running roughshod over Europe. Who's going to stop them? Winston Churchill is begging Roosevelt for the United States to enter into the war. So finally, the United States enters the war, 1941. Enter into the war, well, we're in Africa, and we're fighting Germany, and we're slowly pushing them, but this is a powerful nation. And you couldn't say with any degree of certainty that we were definitely going to win that war. And let me present to you, what if, what if God's hand did not divinely intervene and him release people such as Albert Einstein from Nazi Germany? Because if he didn't, then they probably would have gotten the nuclear bomb. Do you think that Hitler would have been afraid to use the nuclear bomb? No, he wouldn't have. But God, again, is in control. We're more than conquerors. They're more than conquered. I'm not saying that the United States was any godly country at the time. I think it probably was more than it is now. But what did uh, Germany do? They came up against God's anointed. Now, we were kind of contrary to Israel a little bit as well as far as the ship of Jews that came to our country and we turned away and whatnot. But quite have been more that we, we could have done. But you see the picture here. We are more than conquered. We're God's people. They're not. They're more than conquered. Fifth point of hope is the end of the conquered in verse 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is uh, reason. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. History tells us that neither Syria or Israel were able to survive Assyria. Around 732 B.C., Assyria conquered both nations and went on to take them captive, and both of them were consumed. They were brought into the Assyrian nation. The northern kingdom, they were taken captive by Assyria. Assyria gathered the majority of the people and took them captive and dispersed them, and never were they brought back to the degree that they were brought back 
well, at least the southern kingdom later on was brought back from Babylon. They were dispersed. That's why you have the Sumerians. Sumerians were looked upon as the Jews as kind of a half-breed people. They couldn't prove that they were 100% Jews, and so they were always looked at. They were probably people that had been cast off, brought back into the nation, but again, they were a defiled race, or at least looked upon as Israel as a defiled people. And so God would supernaturally protect Judah a little bit later on, because after Assyria consumed both of those nations, Syria and Israel, Assyria was going to come up. They did come up against Judah. The sixth point of hope is the evil intent of Judah's enemies and the knowledge that evil will never prevail. Let's back up and look at verses 4 and 6. And say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of reason in Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabel, says the Lord God. It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. The earmarks of those who work evil, we see in verse 4. Now we can compare that to what we see in, in these nations in the Middle East today. Verse 4 describes them as having fierce anger. Fierce anger. People who are overwhelmed and driven by anger. Remember to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. What happens when you're filled with anger? You're under the influence of anger. Verse 5 describes their counsel as evil counsel. When you take evil counsel, that means you're getting it from somebody who is evil. And so this tells me that these people are not of God at their core, but they're of the devil. God is allowing them to do what they're doing, but they're of the deceitful one. Verse 6 says, they cause a sickening dread. A sickening dread. And their plans included the establishment of a new king. Well, who sits on the king of Judah? The one who God designed to sit on the king or on the throne. I don't think anybody sits on the king, but on the throne. Who sits on the throne of Judah? The one who God designates. Well, these people are designated the son of Tabal. Now, it's interesting. Tabal means good for nothing. So their plans are going to become for good. Now, I don't know if this is just a, I mean, this is definitely the name. I don't know if this is just a label that God has put on him or the name was really Tabal. Now, if you had a presidential candidate and you saw the list and there was a guy good for nothing, would you vote for him? Well, apparently they did, and it came to absolutely nothing. And then the last point of hope that we have is a simple solution. Verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Rephraim's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. The head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. If you don't believe, you will not be established. You'll be as those trees that are shifted from side to side by every direction that the wind blows. The, every newscast that you turn on, it's going to blow you in a different direction. Every newspaper that you read and the evil that you read, it's going to blow you in another direction. Things seem to be getting better, now things seem to be getting worse. But if you believe, you will be established. Why? Because you'll be planted upon the rock. And the wind doesn't move the rock. And the rock was sturdy, and the rock was steady. With everything that we see that's going on, can you believe in God? Can you believe that God is in control? 
can you believe that God is orchestrating the things that are going on? If you truly believe in God and what God is able to do, that he is seated upon the throne, you'll be established. What was Ahaz to believe that we are to be believing in today? That God is in control over everything that's going on in the world. Isaiah chapter 38, verses 6 through 8. See, there was that one day when Assyria did come up to the very gates of Jerusalem. Now, as far as the threat of the northern kingdom in Syria, God took care of that. Later on, when the Assyrians came knocking, God took care of that. Verse 6 of Isaiah 38, I will deliver you in this city from the hands of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. And this is the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. Behold, I will bring the shadow of the sundial, which has gone down with the sun on the sundial of Ahaz, 10 degrees backward. So the sun returned 10 degrees on the dial by which it had gone down. And so what God was doing was giving, that was Hezekiah he was speaking to through the prophet. He was giving him a supernatural sign so that Hezekiah would believe that God is able to do the supernatural. That if he just stood strong in the Lord, then even though the most powerful nation in the world is coming up against God's people, God will supernaturally move and deliver you from the hands of the Assyrians. And that was to be the downfall, at least the beginning of the downfall of the Syrians. So, taking this directly into current events today. Now, keep in mind, we do need to continue to pray about these things. We need to be proactive in these things. But keep this in mind, ISIS. ISIS fearful nation, a fierce people without a doubt. We see, as we saw, and they match the description up above, fierce anger, anger, evil counsel, and they cause a sickening dread. If you've watched any of the videos that they have posted with the, I've never seen the actual decapitation. I don't want to see that, but I've seen people just before it happens, sickening dread without a doubt. But apart from the will of God, ISIS doesn't exist. Why has God allowed ISIS to continue on? Maybe we haven't heard, as a people, the word of God. Maybe we haven't listened to the preaching of the word of God. And now he's sending, as he's always done, these powers from that particular point of the earth to get our attention once more. Since ISIS does exist, God is using them from some sort of purpose. What do I think it is? I think it's just simply as a smoking fire brand. He's wanting to stir up the fire. He's wanting our hearts to turn back to him. He's wanting to get our attention so that we would see him seated upon the throne and we would come before him and we would worship him as God. He's stirring up our generation to the futility of mankind and the knowledge of his sovereign will. In Isaiah 41, verse 2, Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who is Isaiah speaking of? He's speaking of King Cyrus a hundred years before his birth. And so God is saying that I am the one who puts these kings on their throne and allows them to do the things that they do. See, we didn't turn to God after Al-Qaeda. Not as a nation we didn't, not after 911. We're not doing so with ISIS right now. And sooner or later, that's going to increase all the way. And I don't know how long this is going to be and all that. I'm not making any predictions. But sooner or later, he's even going to send the Antichrist. 
the Antichrist so that there would be a true freezing in people's hearts when they turned to the Lord. Many hearts will remain stone cold and they will go and suffer the repercussions of a lack of faith and no hope of God. Secondly, Iran's nuclear capabilities. I'd be very surprised if they don't have some sort of nuclear bomb even right now. I'm thoroughly convinced that they do. But the thing that you need to know, and I'm just using this example because it was made a big deal. I can't remember his name anymore. The president of Iran way back, well, not way back, just a few years ago, he threatened to wipe Israel off the map. Well, if Iran wipes Israel off the face of the earth, then God is not God. If Iran wipes Israel off the face of the earth, then God is not God. And God's word is not to be depended upon. But from our perspective, we need to receive what the Lord told Abraham. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I read to the end of the book, Israel is still going to be in existence. Now there is something to consider. In our study of Ezekiel, we saw an event that looked very much like a nuclear war. And it is possible that we could see nuclear war. It, could, it would be biblically correct if that happened. Now, not for Israel to be wiped off from the face of the earth, but in Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 1 through 8, I'm not going to turn there, but it does appear to be a nuclear war. When does that nuclear war happen? It could be before the rapture. It could be after the rapture. I kind of believe that it could happen definitely before the rapture. And so there's that possibility of nuclear war. Now, since it's in God's word, are we going to be able to stop it? No, you can't stop it. You can't stop it. Now, I'm not saying we don't come up against Iran. We need to come up against Iran. We need to. We need to stop them developing nuclear weapons, I firmly believe, because it says those who bless Israel, God will bless. And so we do need to do that. But at some point, it does seem to be that there is going to be a nuclear war. And the main reason I tell you this is to not lose hope that God is, even if that happens, God is still in control, although Israel will not be wiped off from the face of the earth. I did like Netanyahu's comment. It was towards the end of his speech. He talked about the Holocaust and all that. He says, that will never happen again. We will never, never be submissive to such evil again. They shouldn't have back then. They weren't a nation back then. They are a nation now, and they ought not to be even today. And then thirdly, what about President Obama? What about the policies that he has made? Well, I will ask you, why do we complain that he does not do the biblical things? Why would we even think that he would stand with Israel? It makes no worldly sense to do so. The Arab countries... They got all the oil. The Arab countries, they got the majority of the people. What is the basis of the decisions that he makes in this area? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. President Obama is not a born-again Christian. I know that he says he was at the beginning uh, it was as he was campaigning in the first election when he sat down with um, McCain and uh, Rick Warren. Uh, uh, I think Warren asked him, I don't know, but he claimed to be a born-again Christian. I don't believe that he is because he has not exhibited any fruits of the Spirit whatsoever. 
And so if he's not a born-again believer, we ought not to complain, ought not to expect him to act like a born-again believer. What do we need to do? We need to pray, first of all, that he gets right with God. He needs to be saved. That needs to be the priority. He's not going to make godly decisions because he's under the sway of the evil one, and he is not under the sway of the Holy Spirit. Now, it is God who's going to turn his heart, and he doesn't have any choice, and God is working out a plan. But pray for the man's soul. Pray for the man to get right with Jesus Christ. When you have this feeling that you want to complain, don't complain. Stop using your voice for complaining and start using it for evangelizing. How do you know you won't minister to somebody and see them saved who ministers to somebody else and sees them saved who ministers to the president and you see the president saved? I'm tired of presidents calling themselves Christians. They must be somebody born again. Um, Wouldn't it be an awesome testimony to see a president become born again in office? That would be an amazing testimony. So, sky's not falling. God is on the throne and his plan is being worked out. And that's where our hope is. Father, once again, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, because your word meets us in every place, every situation, and every circumstance. It meets us very directly in the things that are going on in our lives and across the world even today. And so, Father, I just pray that we would believe these things to the point that we receive these things. And these things become part of who we are. Because a belief always becomes part of the fabric of who a person is. And so, Father, I pray that we would proceed, again, not criticizing the president because, again, he's a natural man. But, Father, we would pray for our president, pray that he gets born again. But we would pray for the world situation. I pray for Israel, Lord, and I pray for your hand of protection to be upon them. I pray, Father, that evil would be brought to justice. But most of all, Father, I pray that your plan would, be, would come to fruition. And I know you don't need my prayer for that, and I know it will even apart from my prayer. But, Father, just put me on the same, uh, just put me on the same line, Lord, that you are operating on, that I may see the power of your glory and the wonder of who you are. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all stand, please?